I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. We're going to continue in the sermon series in the presence of my enemies. And how is it that we treat our enemies? How is it that we're supposed to obey this incredibly difficult command of Jesus, love your enemies, and then asking the very question, well, who are my enemies? And today we're going to go into a very difficult area. Last two weeks we've been talking about compassion, kindness, last week forgiveness, and we're going to venture into a different area today. You know, I was I, I, I was told of a story of a, a, a wife who said, you know what, for my birthday, my husband got me a mood ring. You guys know what mood rings are? Who has ever heard of a mood ring? Can you just raise your thank you? Okay, all right, I'm not that old. And she says, you know, it's very fascinating. When I'm happy, it turns green. And when I'm angry, it leaves a red mark on my husband's forehead. Yes, anger. You know, last week we talked about anger and how we can deal with it, how we can not allow it to control us. And I mentioned to you as a boy, I was, I w- I was filled with anger. I was filled with hurts and the resulting anger, bitterness. Anger controlled me. I talked about how my uh, principal in my elementary school was one of my tightest friends. Yep, uh, got to know him by his first name. And uh, the, the truth is, I grew up controlled by anger. But you know, after I came to Christ... My response to opposition really swung to the other side. I mean, I still dealt with some of this anger as God was healing me. (coughs) But I recognized the devastation of anger. I saw it in my dad, and I was one of the victims of that anger. My dad eventually got a clue and began to realize the devastation of his anger. God began to set him free eventually. But I actually swung from a very... As a pendulum, I swung from being a very angry boy to the other side. And I want to talk about right now, I'm going to use an illustration to describe what that other side for me looked like. And I'm going to just preface it with this. This is probably one of the most embarrassing situations in my life, okay? So give me some grace with it. But I can remember I was engaged to Meredith. We went over to her aunt and uncle's house. They had invited us for dinner. And we began to chit-chat with them. And the conversation took a very strange turn. And Meredith's uncle began to bring up some accusations against Meredith. Now, he was a drinker. And I'm sure that he had had probably one too many. I wasn't good with recognizing what someone who's tipsy looks like and how they talk. But his voice began to be raised and his accusations began to get sharper. And I thought to myself, how do I respond? And this is a very awkward situation. And here is the mistake that I made. And this is the embarrassing part. I chose to say to myself, you know what, what if there is some element of truth in this? As Christians, we want to be teachable. And so I allowed him to share his accusations. And they were hard for my wife. And I did nothing. I found that I had swung like a pendulum from being an angry little boy to the other side in which I was truly confused about what love really was. Later, my my fiancé and I had quite a discussion. I was thoroughly embarrassed. I realized that I had failed to draw the line correctly, and that line is what I want to talk about today. What happens... When your enemy crosses that line. And we're going to need to discuss what that line even is. And when he crosses it, what is he crossing into? We need to talk about that. But most of us are of the opinion that kindness and compassion to our enemies 
should always be available to them regardless. And my question is, what happens if they cross this line? Meredith's uncle crossed that line, and I did nothing. And I had to learn from that experience and vow to myself and to my wife-to-be, I cannot allow that to happen again. Because I had made a choice to extend love to him and not protect her. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But here's my question. Are we being told here to obtain peace at any price? And I'm going to suggest to you that if you're going to live by that principle, principle you, will be mi- you will be following a misguided, a misled love. That's the title of the sermon today, misled love. We're going to need to understand and unwrap this concept of love because it is more than just kindness and compassion to our enemies <coughs> because sometimes our enemies are formidable enemies. And they oppose us violently, strongly. What do we do? Matthew 23. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and the experts in the law. Jesus, the very one who said, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for them. This is what he said to them. He says, they don't practice what they preach. He said, everything they do is to impress others. He said, they are proud. And then he got very personal, and he switches it to you. Plural you, but you. You Pharisees. You are hypocrites. You make converts who are twice the sons of hell as you are. He said, you are blind guides. You are whitewashed tombs. You are a brood of vipers. You're snakes. Wow. He is pulling no punches here. He says, you are condemned. That means you're going to hell. Whoa. In Luke 11, where Luke chooses to take this passage and insert it in that portion of his gospel, he says that a, <coughs> excuse me, an expert in the law says, wait, 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 wait. Now, I'm, I'm not sure what the Aramaic is for wait, 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 okay. But he says, wait, 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 Jesus. You are also insulting us, not just the Pharisees. Jesus did not say, oh, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Jesus actually went on and insulted them more. Jesus, come on, aren't you supposed to practice what you preach? Or is it that we are the ones who are misunderstanding? In our vernacular, the way we would say it is Jesus wasn't insulting them. Jesus was calling a spade a spade. And we're going to need to ask, well, when is that okay? When is there a difference between saying something to purposefully insult someone And calling a spade a spade. Now, I read the very beginning, or or I I didn't really read it. I I captured in a sentence or a phrase what Jesus said in the very beginning of Matthew 23. They don't practice what they preach. Everything they do is to impress others. They are proud because this is the groundwork or the foundation from which Jesus now levies his accusations, or as the expert in the law put it, his insults. He called a spade a spade. They were creating twice the sons of hell by making converts. They were misguided. They were blind guides. When is it okay to be firm? Israel's leaders were not leading. Was Jesus being loving? I want you to turn, if you haven't already, to Acts 13. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, (coughs) but I want us to see something. This is Paul and Barnabas trying to deal with a false prophet. He is actually a sorcerer. He's a Jewish 
sorcerer, and he is vehemently opposing the gospel that Paul is preaching, and Paul is very aware, uh, is very aware of this. It says in verse 6, they traveled through the whole island that is of Cyprus until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which simply means son of Jesus. And no, not the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, Jesus, a different Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, this is a Roman proconsul. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, Elymas means sorcerer, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. I'm going to come back to this in just a little bit, but I want us to realize that there is a time in which it appears that Paul is cursing his enemy. And Jesus says, bless and do not curse. But understand, it is not Paul that is cursing them. Number one, just look through those few verses there, 9 through, what is it, 11, I guess. We see phrases like, filled with the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying here is from God. He specifically speaks to Elymas, and he calls him a child of the devil. He has acute insight into this man. He is a sorcerer. He worships demons, consequently. And he is being led by the devil. You're a child of the devil. Your source is of the devil. Why would he observe this? Because of things that he was saying and doing, it was very clear that Elymas was an enemy of the gospel. Not just being an enemy of the gospel would not cause Paul to do this, but he is preventing Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, from being able to weigh the evidence, weigh the truths that Paul and Barnabas are sharing with him and keeping him from salvation. Paul does not say, I curse you. He says, the hand of the Lord is against you. He is simply speaking prophetically. God is now about to discipline you severely. Now, <coughs> God could have struck Elymas with blindness for the rest of his life, but Paul doesn't say that. Luke doesn't tell us that. It's for a season. The result is that the proconsul, it says, believes in Christ. He sees what's happening, and he's, and he's amazed by the power of God. Immediately, Elymas could not see it's like a mist came over him and he needed to have someone lead him by the hand he was blind now granted only for a, a season but he was blind this captured sergius paulus's attention in addition to the fact that he was hearing the gospel for the first time and he was hungry for this truth. There was something about what Paul and Barnabas were telling him that rung true in his spirit. And the spirit of God was speaking to him. We don't know exactly what, except confirming this truth. And then with Elymas being struck blind, the proconsul takes that step and he, he gives his heart. He surrenders his heart. He believes in Jesus Christ. Sins washed away, forgiven completely. A new creation in Christ, as Paul talks about in Corinthians. God changed this man's life. Because Paul 
was able to know who his enemy was and how to deal with him in that moment. Now, can I say, for the rest of what I'm going to talk about, please understand, if you weren't here for the last two sermons, I truly believe that we are to love our enemies, that we are to go the second mile, that we are to go out of our way to serve our enemies. We just had another recent incident with a neighbor, uh, not with me, but with um, a relative, and I, I had to decide, okay, what do I do here? Because I don't want people visiting my home and a neighbor getting rude with them. And so I had to pray, okay, God, what do I do in this situation? And, and as, I, as I heard about what happened, I felt, okay, he was rude, but he didn't cross that line where I needed to step in, knock on his door, and have a conversation with him. And, and I truly believe that if he had gone too far, that would be my responsibility. And I, I would try and be neighborly and, and gracious with him, but make sure he understood, here's the line, please don't cross that. That would be my responsibility. This morning, or, or last night rather, I was, I was praying for my neighbor, and I am right now praying, okay, God, I realize there is something in this man's heart. He's opposed to Christianity. I know this for sure because of what he said. And what had happened was an accident, but he chose not to see it that way. And I'm saying, okay, God, what can I do now to serve this man who's, who's presenting himself as an enemy? And I do believe that we are to serve our enemies. But having said that, there are times in which we must be very firm and we must draw this line. And if our enemy chooses to cross that line, we no longer extend this kindness and compassion. But we are now very firm. Very firm. Psalm 139.22, it said, David says, I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Ecclesiastes 3.8, it says, there is a time for everything. That's verse 1. And then in verse 8, it says, a time to love and a time to hate. Is hate okay sometimes? I want you to think about this. I mean, it's easy to rationalize and say, okay, well, he's talking about loving people here and hating sin. And I'm going to suggest to you he's actually talking about hating our enemies. Now, because of the confusion, and, and some of you right now are probably confused, but Pastor Mike, what's he saying? Are, are you trying to tell me that Jesus is wrong? He says, love your enemies, and now you're encouraging us to hate them, and, and you're backing it up with some Old Testament scriptures? Well, maybe, it was, maybe the Old Testament was wrong there, but Jesus is right. And I'm going to suggest to you, if that's the case, then we have a contradiction in scripture. And God breathes out only truth. There is no contradiction here. So I'm going to take the next few minutes, and I want us to walk through that there are actually three definitions of hate that are used in the Bible. The problem that the Pharisees had in Jesus' day and why he said, love your enemies, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> was because they did not understand this differentiation that honestly was it's there in the Bible, and we need to walk through this so that we can see it because it is this third definition in which Solomon says there's a time to love and there's a time to hate. In which David says, I love my, or, or I hate my enemies. King James says, I hate my enemies with perfect hatred. The NASB says, I hate my enemies with the utmost Hatred. I disagree with that translation, but we're going to get there in a minute. Well, let's look at this first definition of hate. In Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus says, You cannot be my disciples unless, listen to this, you hate your mother and father, your brothers and sisters, and even your life, deny self, 
Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, based on that, we would say, wait, wait, wait. Now, some, some kids would say, yes, I knew I was right. Hate your mother and father. When I was a kid, believe it or not, I started, I started a mother-haters club. I really did. My mom is the most gracious mother, and yet she told me to do things I didn't like. And being an angry kid, I did what I thought was most reasonable. I started a club, <laughs> a mother-haters club. I really did. It lasted for about a week. But is Jesus actually telling me to hate my mother? Now, if you were to go to a corresponding passage in Matthew 10, 37, Matthew (coughs) is using a different word here. So I want you to turn there to Matthew 10, 37. In Luke 14, 26, you can write that down. He actually uses the word hate. Hate your mother and father, and then come follow me. But in Matthew 10, it is the same context, the same teaching, a different word or phrase. And in Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, If anyone, listen to this, who loves his father or mother more than me, Anyone who does this is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Take up your cross and follow me. In other words, meaning you can't love yourself more either. And what we find here is that Jesus, by using the word hate, he means to love less. We actually see that in the Old Testament. In Malachi 3, or is it 3, 2 and 3, uh, Malachi says concerning the Lord, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. What is up with that? Now, if you were to go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 29, verses 30 and 31, it says that Jacob loved Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that that was wrong. That kind of favoritism was like a cancer in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their children. This, 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 This was wrong. This was a sin. But Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. The very next verse It says, and God had pity upon Leah because she was hated. Even in the Old Testament, we see that there is this idea in which the word hate simply means, Old and New Testament, to love less. To love less. So that's the first definition. It means to love less. It does not contradict our understanding of love. I mean, I love my wife, but the truth is I must love my wife less than I love Jesus to follow him. I think we need to value money. I, w- I wouldn't use the term love, but we need to value money. But for the rich young ruler, Jesus, in essence, was saying money is your God, so you have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Because you love that too much, you need to love money less. You need to love these things of the world less. You need to value them less. Jesus must be the love of your life. Jesus asked that there be no competition. No competition. Now, the second definition of hate I think it's going to be pretty clear to us. It's really what we've been talking about when Jesus in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, he says, hate, you've heard it said, hate your enemies, but I say, love your enemies. Now, this type of hate, as opposed to our first definition, this type of hate, this type of hate is immersed in what we called last week, the cesspool of bitterness. The first type of love is uh, hate is not. It simply means to love less. But this second definition 
the second definition is steeped in bitterness. It is not redemption. It seeks harm because of bitterness, because of anger, because of hatred. And so consequently, Jesus says, get rid of that type Excuse me. Get rid of that type of hatred. It's unforgiving. It's vengeful. Two weeks ago, we saw that when Jesus gave that challenge, love your enemies, it was in the context of vengeance. And he was saying, don't do that. Don't hate your enemies, but love your enemies. So the, the first definition we would, at least for us, would better be translated love less. This second, defi- this second word, hate, is best translated hate. It's just hate. Now it's the third definition and how this word hate is used in the Bible that I want us to focus on. And we need to understand it because we are called by God to walk it out. And not make the mistake that I made when I was engaged to my wife. So let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 139. I quoted a verse from it just a few minutes ago. And in Psalm 139, verses 20 or 19 through 22, it says this. <coughs> if only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men, They speak of you, referring to God, you, with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, when it says nothing but, and the King James translates that word perfect, The word means perfect or completeness, and so it can mean to the utmost or the extreme, and that is how the NASB translates it. And so as we read it, it is David saying, I have nothing but hatred for them. I have the utmost hatred for them. And when you read that, you would understand this hatred to mean contempt (coughs) and an animosity, even a vengeance against his enemies. And that is not David's heart, though it might sound that way. This word, meaning completeness, in this context would better be translated the highest form, like the highest form of hatred. In Psalm 5.5, it says that God hates the wicked. Can I ask you? Would it not be true that Jesus, that, excuse me, God sent his son Jesus because he loved the world so much? That is what John 3.16 tells us. How is it that this God of love hates the wicked? Back in the second century, a gentleman by the name of uh, Marcion promoted this idea that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament was a God of love. That's where that concept comes from. That is a completely unbiblical concept. And I suggest to you where it comes from is because he believed that the God of the Old Testament was actually an evil God. Much as in Greek mythology, you have good gods who aren't completely good and bad gods who aren't completely bad and they war against one another. And that's kind of this belief that Marcion held to. Marcion was actually a leader in the church, and he began espousing some of these really off-the-wall ideas. He believed that there were many gods, and that the God that created this world and had Israel go to war, etc., etc., that he was, there was actually evil in his heart, and that the Father, our Father, sent Jesus, a different God, sent Jesus to this earth because he loved us. 
The God of the Old Testament didn't. The God of the New Testament did. This is where Marcion was coming from. He tried to get Polycarp to agree with him and meet with him, and Polycarp said, I absolutely will not even entertain any of your ideas, and he called him a son of the devil. And Marcion was excommunicated. He was teaching heresy. So if you have ever heard that expression, well, isn't the God of the Old Testament a God of anger and wrath and hate and the God of the New Testament love? Understand where that comes from. It is completely unbiblical. So how is it then that it says God hates the wicked? Can I suggest to you that this second form or type of hatred is immersed in the cesspool of bitterness. And that this third definition or way in which the word hate or hatred is used really means to be completely opposed to. Completely opposed to. God is completely opposed to the wicked. Did God really hate Esau? No, he didn't. He loved him less. Did God really hate the wicked? Yes, but he loves them. He is just completely opposed to them. Now, the reason why Jesus fixates on this second definition of hate is because that's the type of hate that most people are so all too familiar with. That hate comes from a heart that is filled with anger and hurt and bitterness. It is vengeful. This third definition of hate is not like that. It asks for, it asks for justice to be done for sure, but it is not filled with bitterness. It doesn't spring from a heart that's been steeped in the cesspool of bitterness. Saul, later who became Paul, was completely opposed to Jesus. As a matter of fact, he had Christians put to death. He was a wicked man. We could say that God hated Saul. But I'm going to suggest to you in this third definition, and we need to get this, this third definition of hate, it is redemptive. There is this element of redemption. There is this element in which how I respond, we need to see good come out of this. It is redemptive. And for Saul, it absolutely was. And for that reason, I'll, I'll put it this way, God went out of his way. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was opposed to Jesus. And Jesus was completely opposed to Saul and his wickedness. And he broke him. He broke his heart. He broke him down. He literally had Saul fall to the ground, struck with blindness for three days. And Saul eventually came to his senses. And he trusted in that Jesus that he had been persecuting. And he lived the rest of his life, even though it meant death in the end. We're talking about this Jesus that had been raised from the dead, that he saw, that forgave him of his sins and rescued him. This type of hate is redemptive. It absolutely does not contradict love. It is free from the cesspool of bitterness. We see it ultimately in the God who hates the wicked dying for the wicked. All of us were in that category. It does seek justice, though. But justice that brings about a change of heart, repentance. This, this would be the nature of discipline. Sometimes, however, those whom God furiously opposes choose not to be rescued. They choose not to repent. And they are, they are judged. 
I can remember a time, and I shared this story with you so I'm gonna, before, so I'm going to be very brief. But there was a time in which a man had crossed this line and had sinned against a young lady that was very close to our family. I said, okay, God, is there something that I am supposed to do? And, and I spent two hours one Sunday night praying about this whole situation and what this young man was doing. And God spoke to me, and he said, I want you to go tell him. It would be better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. Whoa, whoa. Okay, God. I have never said that to anyone. That is in Matthew 18, by the way, that it would be, be, it would be better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea should you cause one of these little ones of mine to stumble, that is, into sin. And that's what happened. And so I went to him, and I said, God and I had a conversation just a few days ago, and he told me to come to you. And it was at work, and it was awkward, and I'd never done this before. And I said to the young man, I said, God told me that it would be better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea because you have kept the apple of my eye. And I will protect my apple. He didn't like that too much. He didn't argue. He didn't even get angry. And he allowed me to talk to him for 20 minutes and call him to Jesus. I don't know where he is today, but I pray that he took that caution seriously. Because what God showed me was, should he repent, the punishment will be less. But if he does not, and he continues down this path, it will be the most severe. I leave that in God's hands. I've never had to do that before. But God challenged me. This man is furiously opposing me, and I will tolerate it no longer. There are times in which God is going to call you to do things that when you first think of it, it appears unloving. Now, I'm not saying that you yell at them. I'm not saying that you are furious with them. I, I, Peter himself, he says to Simon the sorcerer in, in Acts 8, we looked at that last week, <coughs> Simon's heart was steeped in the cesspool of bitterness, the scripture says, into the gall of bitterness, and he was held captive to sin. Peter, if you remember, when he first confronts him, Simon was saying, hey, give me this power so that whomever I lay my hands on will receive the, the Holy Spirit and that I will have this power. And Peter's initial response to him was this. He says, may your money perish with you. Can I just translate that into our day-to-day -day language? May your money go to hell with you. That's what he was telling him. He was giving him a wake-up call. Do you not realize what you have asked? Do you not realize where your heart is? It is filled with bitterness. And I'm not going to preach that, that section of the sermon. I already did that last week. But understand, as Simon, he, he, as, as the years began to unfold, he did, he, he, by the way, excuse me, in that discourse, and it was very short, that Peter gave to Simon, he said, repent and pray, and perhaps God will forgive you. And I would suggest Simon did not repent. His money did perish with him. And he is having to spend eternity in hell because he refused. He absolutely refused. Can I ask you, if our understanding of hate in this third definition is totally opposed to, it doesn't contradict love, there is a redemptiveness about it, 
whereas in the second definition, there is none of that. How do we know when we have, how do we know which one we are in? How do we know that this opposing of my enemy is of the second definition or the third? I mean, I'm going to suggest this to you. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18 tells us not to rejoice when our enemy falls and not to, and, and that we are to merely accept that justice has been served by the divine judge. God does want to bring justice to the wicked. That justice will either come in this life or the next. And the reason why that does not sound loving is because as, a, as fallen creatures dealing with sin and the effects of sin and and what sin does to our mind and our heart, it is hard for us to truly understand this type of hate or this type of justice. And, 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 And we find it difficult to realize that this truly is love. The God, Scripture says, God is love. And it is out of love that this type of what the King James calls perfect hatred emerges. So if you find yourself rejoicing or gloating in the downfall of your enemy, then you know that there has been some bitterness, that there is a bitter root in there, and that is a sign of the second type of of hate. I do believe that we should cry out to God for justice. When one nation opposes a, a, another nation and dominates them and, and kills men, women, and children, I believe that the people of God should rise up and cry out to God for justice. It doesn't mean that we are not exempt from sin, but we are, we are now seeking to stand in the gap. God, bring your justice in this situation. moment here. I'm pulling one. Here we go. So in this third definition, hate is redemptive. It could be of the person themselves, or it could be of, it could be of those who are listening. Uh, the question I would like to ask, and I, I had to ask this past week, okay, so Jesus is hurling insults at these Pharisees, and he's calling a spade a spade, then why is he doing this? It may be that the the Pharisees needed to realize that they were poor leaders, that they were caught in this hypocrisy, and Jesus needed to just level with them and say, look, you think you guys have it together, but you don't. You are simply blind guides of the blind, and you are only marching them to eternal damnation. Now, maybe for some of them, that was a wake-up call. But I tell you what, it was definitely a wake-up call for those that were gathered around him. For all of those who were listening in, to those who were supposed to be following their leaders, because Jesus said, I understand that these Pharisees, these leaders, they sit in Moses' seat, and you must obey them. But let me tell you, they are hypocrites. You still need to obey them, but just don't do what they did. And Jesus gave the Pharisees and the leaders, the the religious leaders of his day, a wake-up call, but he was also challenging and warning. He needed to protect those who were seeking to follow them. And so now we come to this understanding. What is this line that if our enemy crosses it, We fiercely oppose him. And I would use the third definition of hate. As Paul, as Pete, excuse me, as David says, I hate them with perfect hatred. With the highest form, the purest form of hatred. Not with bitterness. I will fiercely oppose them if they cross this line. What is that line? 
Where do we draw it? I'm going to suggest to you that this line is the line of our responsibility that God has given us to protect something that he has entrusted to us. Let me just say that again. This line is that line of our responsibility that God has given us to protect something that he has entrusted to us. Let me just give you some examples, and there's, these are only examples of responsibility that he's entrusted to you. God has entrusted to you, for example, assets, certain assets. <coughs> if someone comes, like a thief, and he comes to steal from you, how should you respond? Should you feel compelled? Well, love would mean I should let him take it. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever let him take it. There's actually some examples that Scripture gives in which because the thief was poor, he actually let them have it. But here's my concern. Are you now teaching them to steal? That's the other consideration. And what you're going to find is this line, sometimes it's strong, and if they put one foot over it, we are that mother bear that protects the cubs. And other times, when it is more personal and against, these are my assets, I may choose to say, okay, you may have some of them because we recognize their poverty or what have you. Scripture in Romans 7 says that we are called to walk in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter of the law. And I'm going to suggest to you that you are going to need to walk in the spirit because every situation is going to be different. So this first example has to do with assets. Another one. We're in a present situation in which our former president has allowed Syrian refugees to come to America. Now, it is very clear, and ISIS has made it clear, that there are many terrorists, how many, we don't know, within those Syrian refugees. But our former President Obama said, we welcome the huddled masses, do we not? And so he has, he has even commanded, you must receive these refugees. Now, I would suggest to you, and our former President Obama has made it clear, that in many ways he does not understand what love is. This is not the first time that he has misunderstood this. And it is because President Obama rejects the Bible. And because of that, he has no guide for what is truly love. Now, there's a lot that we could get into. I'm going to choose not to. But he doesn't know where this line is drawn. To what degree do we love? His responsibility was to protect his nation, America. That was his primary responsibility, not to protect another nation. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have compassion on the Syrian refugees. I'm not saying that at all. But there must be another plan rather than blindly welcoming them into our, our nation, into these cities, because we will be welcoming terrorism. And his first priority must be the nation of America. That's what he's called to. That is his responsibility. In the same way, I will protect my assets because that's how I provide for my family. And if someone chooses to steal it, I will more than likely say, no, you may not. Because that is for my family. And so I protect my family in this way. Anyone seeking to do my family harm. So our family, our assets, our family, we must protect them. Truth, the gospel, that would be another example. <coughs> Paul, when he was confronting Elymas, had been entrusted to his responsibility or to his care, the responsibility of, of preaching the gospel to the proconsul, and Elymas was opposed to that. Elymas was filled with hatred for the gospel. We need to realize that many of these enemies that oppose us and they cross this line, they do so not with good intentions. They do so with the intention to harm. They, they, they may be misled, yes, but they are seeking to oppose us and, 
And God is challenging us that we need to be completely opposed to them and not allow them to cross that line. And so for that reason, Paul turned to Elymas and he said, you are a child of the devil. Well, guess who was leading Elymas? And Satan will lead many of our enemies, and we need to oppose them as fiercely as we would oppose Satan himself. Now again, if you're thinking through this sermon and some of the passages that we're reading, and there's confusion, and you're wondering, man, Pastor Mike, what you're saying, it sounds like it's, it's anything but love. And I'm going to challenge you. This is the very thing that I wrestled with when I was a young man. God, what is love? God is the perfect example of love, and yet he was fiercely opposed to the wicked. And he says concerning the apple of his eye, concerning the little ones who follow me, you touch them, it would be better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. That is the heart of our father. This type of opposition to our enemies this type of hatred if you will and i choose not to use this term hatred only because it too easily gets confused with the second definition that's steeped in the cesspool of bitterness and so i choose to use fiercely opposed the god of love walks in this fierce opposition this hatred regularly and it has no contradiction to his love We have been given the responsibility of protecting the truth. And in our day, there are many who oppose the truth, many who oppose the gospel. There are those who, who preach, you know what, if, if you just believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you're saved. And there are many preachers of the gospel, well, I should say gospel, that say just believe, just believe in this creed right here, just believe this creed and you'll go to heaven. And I would like to respond and say, so does that mean that the devil's going to go to heaven too? Because the devil believes that creed. The devil believes that Jesus is the son of God. He believes he's the Messiah. I would actually venture to say that the devil's theology is probably better than most of us. He knows the Bible. Just because you know the truth doesn't mean that you're a Christian, doesn't mean that you're saved, doesn't mean that you've been redeemed. Because faith is more than just acknowledging the facts. It's acknowledging a person and following him. It is saying, I refuse to put me on the throne of my life any longer, and I am making Jesus my Lord. And then we come, even within certain seminaries, this, this misunderstanding of repentance. And they say, <laughs> repentance is just merely a change of mind. It does not have to affect your emotions so that you are sorrowful for your sin. And it does not have to affect your will that at that moment of conversion that you choose to turn from your sin and follow God. It's simply a change of mind. Metanoia means a change of mind. But can I ask you this? If we truly change our mind about who Jesus is, that he is the sovereign God, that he died for my sins, should that not affect your will? Should you not say, you then, Jesus, are my Lord and my master. I will follow you. I am not going to follow my sin anymore. Break my will. Break my heart. Change me, God, because I am addicted to my sin. And I love my sin. That, that, I mean, I'm lost in it. And as, as Jesus put in the parable of the lost son, it says while he was feeding the pigs, where pigs were, it says this, and the son came to his senses. And he thought within himself, what am I doing here? Even my father's servants get treated better than this. I'll just go back and say, Dad, I don't have a right to be your son anymore. Just, just treat me as a servant. And when he came back to the father, his father saw him in a distance and he ran to him. And he threw his arms around him 
and he wept on his shoulder and he and he was he rejoiced he loved his son and he welcomed him back and he said kill the fatted calf let's celebrate because my loss my son who was lost has been found and i'm going to suggest to you that that is the very heart of the father the gospel even though it has been twisted and distorted to the point where those who listen to it they are they end up feeling comfortable in their sin and they are willing to say i will follow jesus and i've heard this so many times i will follow jesus as my savior but not as my lord and i would suggest to you that if he is not your lord He cannot be your Savior. We need to defend the truth. And in our day, that truth of the gospel especially is being twisted and perverted. We need to defend it. I'm going to close with this. Here's what I discovered about myself when I was misled by my understanding of life. And when I allowed my wife's uncle to treat her as she did, I realized that I had a heart issue. I didn't just misunderstand love. There was a heart issue here. And I began to pray over it and cry out to God, whatever is wrong in here, something's missing, something's twisted. And it's not just a definition of love. But I realized that over time I had become a people pleaser. And I avoided conflict. And God needed to change that. Bill, Uncle Bill, had crossed the line into my area of responsibility to protect my fiance. But I, I was more concerned about him having a voice for his misplaced complaint than I was about protecting my wife-to-be. That's what embarrassed me so much. I realized what a fool I was, how misguided I was. Here's what's really at stake, though. When we don't understand what love is, and we allow our enemies to continually cross this line, and we fail to understand our responsibilities and protect, we have become people pleasers. We call it kindness or compassion, but the bottom line is, we have become people pleasers. I'm going to suggest to you that when the enemy does this, that there should be something militant in your heart that rises up, even as you would oppose the devil himself. If the devil appeared to you and began to attack you, how gracious would you be to him? You you would not be gracious at all. You would fight. There would be something militant in your heart that would rise up and and, and would say, absolutely not. And if he was attacking your child, would you not step in like a mother bear protecting your cubs and say, absolutely not. And the devil will come at our children in a number of different ways. And it's our responsibility to protect them. And if the devil should come against our children, would you not stand up and say, absolutely not. You cannot cross this line. And I'm talking about the devil appearing right before you. And I'm asking you, what is the difference then when he takes a different form in the form of a person? to oppose you there should be something in our heart that rises up and says you know what i am called to love you but you will not cross this line because if you do you will regret it that is love that is love for my children so i'm going to encourage you can you stand with me in prayer I realize today was a little bit more on the, the theological side. It's just that there, there needs to be something that rises within the people of God that says to those who are utterly opposed to us, you will not cross this line. We need to understand this idea of love. 
And especially as we come to the table of the Lord today. Because the very God that considered us his enemies and was opposed to us provided a way out. He provided redemption and he sent his son and his son willingly laid his life down for you and me. That is this God that we serve. That is this God of love. And he came to this earth because he so loved the world.